It is such a pleasure to be with you all today as we get so close to getting to celebrate Christmas and celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we continue to prepare, as Pastor Andy just set up, we will be in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55, and Mary's famous song. Well, as many people look ahead to Christmas, and as so many people in our country have been looking ahead to Christmas for the last month or so, I think it's safe to say that, that a great number of people's understanding of Christmas and even feelings towards Christmas are, are best summed up in those classic songs that are played on repeat in just about every department store, on the radio, perhaps in your workplace, and maybe even your home. Songs like Sleigh Ride or The Christmas Song or White Christmas. These are beautiful songs, and for good reason, they tend to inspire a certain amount of happiness in many of the hearers who enjoy year, every year this time of year. Each of these songs, while different, are generally marked by the same pattern, aren't they? So many of these songs open up with that overly happy, enthusiastic introduction, using instruments like sleigh bells, in the case of sleigh ride using upbeat tempos that are intended to cause the listener to rejoice, to get excited. As those songs continue on through their lyrics, we all understand their heavy reliance on nostalgia as they inspire the listeners to think back on childhood memories and our favorite Christmases from years ago. And as so many of those classic songs come to their conclusion, come to their outro, they offer that, that generic wish of peace offering this hope of future happy Christmases that are able to expand upon our own joy and our own appreciation of this life. These songs are pretty effective in their ability to, to stir up those nostalgic thoughts, aren't they? They're, they're pretty effective in causing people to, to get in a certain mood around this time of year, and so there's good reason for them to be played year in and year out. Yet as much as we might all enjoy that music, we understand those classic Christmas songs carry with them some pretty clear limitations. Limitations due to how closely tied they are to just this time of year. You can list off a number of limitations for these songs. The first one being the time of year in which they're able to be played. It's relatively short. Like most God-fearing Americans, like most of you I assume, I understand these songs can only be played after Thanksgiving. And can only be played up until maybe New Year's at max. It's a small window of time. I understand there are some of you in here offended because you fall into that other camp of people that insist on playing Christmas songs way before Thanksgiving. Uh, it's a strange tradition. But it's something that can be done, I understand. But even you have your limitations, right? You have your own convictions. We don't play these songs in July. I hope you don't. It'd be strange. Apart from that limitation, we understand the limitations even those nostalgic lyrics can bring to mind. For as, as beautiful as it is to think about those white Christmases, as beautiful as those classic lyrics of chestnuts roasting on open fire, uh, perhaps a more critical eye would look upon those lyrics and realize, well, I've never actually experienced any of these things before. I'm almost 40 years old myself, and I don't know about you, but my family's never roasted chestnuts. I assume that has something to do with with the, the smell, maybe? I don't know. Someone can correct me afterwards. I literally have no idea what it's referring to. I just know it's supposed to, to stir up warm thoughts, happy feelings. I love hearing the lyrics of White Christmas, but I grew up in the Dallas suburbs, and I gotta tell you, there's not a lot of White Christmases. And when there are, they're terrifying because no one can drive in the snow and ice down there. So it's nothing to celebrate. And so we understand even those thoughts, while they're supposed to appeal to our childhood, well, they don't really necessarily speak of two experiences I've had. But most significantly, we see the limitations of these classic songs and even the hope that they're supposed to inspire, don't we? For as beautiful as those lyrics of, of some of these songs are that speak of future Christmases, that speak of, of peace that they wish upon their hearers, well, a Christmas song can actually deliver these things. And so as, as happy as a person might be listening to them, we as a society understand that, well, after Christmas time, those songs will be shelved once again, and we'll forget the lyrics, and we'll move on with our life, understanding those songs themselves really can't inspire anything of change, anything of significance. That is just the nature of a Christmas song. Yet when we come to Luke 1, and really when we come to any Christmas song in Scripture, 
we find songs that are so radically different that it seems they fall into an entirely different category of music. For instead of hearing those, those relatively empty lyrics of Sleigh Ride or White Christmas, we come to Luke 1 and we see a song that is altogether different and infinitely more powerful. For as we will see today, in a song like this song sung by a humble, young, soon-to-be mother, we see a Christmas song that's not just marked by some empty, stereotypical, upbeat tempo in its introduction. But we see a song that, that opens up with a profound sense of humility, an understanding of how dark things have been. As we consider the lyrics of this song of Mary, we see lyrics that don't revolve around and, and are rooted in just nostalgia, the thoughts of Christmas past. No, we, we see lyrics that are rooted in an ancient history of God's people, and more significantly, a, a refrain of, of God's profound, deep, beautiful glory. And it's upon that glory that the outro, that the conclusion of her song is built, where we come to a conclusion that doesn't just speak of some generic well-wishes of a future white Christmas. It doesn't just speak of some generic hope for peace and, and happiness, but it speaks with the utmost certainty of a future that the singer, the songwriter, knows fully well. For it's a future of God's judgment upon the nations, but a future of peace for God's people. And again, it's a peace that isn't just hoped for, it's a peace that is understood. And it's important to understand then that as we look at a song like this, it is only in this type of song that we can walk away with a fuller appreciation of really what Christmas is. And it is my hope this morning that as we explore this song of Mary, that we might understand just how trivial so many of those other songs are that represent Christmas for so many people. And that as we walk away with this song on our lips, we might walk away not just with the hopes of a happy Christmas this coming Sunday, but with the reminder and the realization of the hope that lies far after that. A hope that doesn't simply change the way we approach December 25th, but a hope that changes the way we approach every single second that God gives us before he fulfills all of his promises, which he will. As we begin to explore this song, though, let's begin with another word of prayer and ask for God's blessing upon our time. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you for just the joy we've already experienced in singing such tremendous songs, God. Songs that speak of our hope. Songs that speak of your gracious love shown to us. That love exemplified in the birth of ultimately life and death and resurrection of our long-awaited Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, it is so easy for all of us in here to get caught up in just the seasonal traditions that so many people around us get caught up in. It is so easy to lose sight of the everlasting joy that Christmas ultimately is intended to bring us. And so, God, as we come together this morning, God, it might be a time of much-needed reminder a time of, of review of your glory, a review of our identity, and a review of where we are ultimately headed, and a reminder of how Christmas speaks to all of this. God, we pray for, for a, a, a removal of all distractions, strip us of our pride this morning, cause us to see in the words of this young, unwed mother, the brilliance of Scripture causes us to see in Mary an example of humility, an example of faith, an example of what all of your people ought to look like and sound like. God, bless this time. Use it to draw those who are unbelievers to you, God. Bring them to a saving faith today. Might they, for the first time, see the beauty of Christmas by seeing your glory, God. We pray all these things, all according to your precious Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned already, as we come to the song of Mary, we are very quickly um, shown just how different this type of song is compared to your average Christmas song heard on the radio today. And that difference is seen from the, from the get-go in, in this intro 
that is marked by Mary's corporate humility, this profound appreciation of how low we are. That lowliness is heard in the words of Mary in verses 46 through 50. Follow along with me as I begin there. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. Here, as the song begins, we see the humility of Mary on full display. And when many of us hear that word humility, our minds go to that virtue of humility, that, that inner state. Well, that certainly is accurate with Mary. That is not the humility that she is ultimately referring to here in verse 48 when she speaks of the humble state of herself as God's bond slave. Now, when Mary acknowledges her humility, she's referring to the realization of her own earthly status. She's referring to how insignificant she is. And this is by no means some false sense of humility. Mary is making just a simple observation of who she is in reality. We don't know a whole lot about Mary in the text. But already in the passage that Pastor Andy read from earlier in Luke chapter 1, we see a few points that clearly demonstrate how true Mary was being when she spoke of her lowly estate. Look back, if you will, earlier in verse 26. The beginning of that narrative when the angel Gabriel is going to appear before Mary to tell her this news. And setting that scene up, we read, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Not a lot of information there, is it? But But very quickly, we see a couple of details about Mary that speak to how just lowly of a state she was in. One of those first qualities is revolving around her hometown. Where's Mary from? Well, she's from Nazareth. Now, that name, Nazareth, that town, is no doubt familiar to many of you here because you've heard the Christmas story year in and year out from the time of childhood on up. But for the original readers coming to this text... Nazareth is as just about as an insignificant of a place as you could find. There's a reason, many commentators say, that the author describes Nazareth not just in its own name, but as a city in Galilee. Because most readers perhaps didn't even know what Nazareth was, but they at least knew of Galilee. So this gave them a, a general appreciation of where this was taking place. Nazareth was a city that very few people wrote of. You will not find references to it, in the Old Testament, as you would of Jerusalem or even Bethlehem. You will not even really find any references to it in ancient historians, people like Josephus and others. It just didn't matter to people. It was home to maybe 500 people at best. It was under the the political rule of, of nearby cities, nearby regions. And the people who lived there were equally insignificant seen as relatively unimportant to society at large, and that no doubt included Mary and her family. Nazareth was not an important place. The people of Nazareth were not important people. The reality of its insignificance is really hit home in another passage, in John chapter 1, and this account in which you see the collection of disciples by Jesus, this is of course long after he's born, In the midst of John chapter 1, you see this passing reference that is so helpful in showing us just how little Nazareth was. For in John chapter 1, verse 44, in the midst of Jesus calling disciples, we read, Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That kind of hurts, doesn't it? I mean, no one wants their hometown to be referred to in such a, 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 an insulting manner. I live in Jackson. I love Jackson. The, the song or the, the billboard that greets you in Jackson says what? A home of, of good schools, churches, and parks? It's some, let's be honest, a little nonsensical. It's an odd de- de- description of any city. But at least it's complimentary towards the city. Can you imagine driving in your hometown and being greeted by a billboard, Welcome to Jackson. Welcome to Cape Girardeau keep driving. 
there's nothing here to see, folks. You don't want to know the people here. You don't want to enjoy anything we have to offer. Nothing good comes from this place. No one wants their town to be known as that. And yet that's Nazareth. That's Mary's hometown. That's where she no doubt was raised. That is all she ever knew. Not only that, but we understand from the text back in Luke 1 that Mary herself is still so young. There's debates as to exactly what her age is, but we're talking maybe at max 16 years old around. She's a young girl, not yet married, still a virgin as referenced by the text, and therefore someone who has not yet really contributed anything to society as a whole. As a result, it would be hard to find someone really less honorable in the eyes of the world. It would be hard to describe herself in any other terms other than a humbled bond slave of God. For Mary understands she has nothing to offer. Yet having said that, having used this language, we must quickly understand that Mary's not ashamed of this. No, Mary takes pride in this. And why would she? Well, the reason for that is because Mary understands, and this will certainly come out throughout the text, Mary understands that in her humility, she is just placed in a far more honorable, larger category that so many great men and women of faith have come before her. For that theme of humility is one that is consistently picked up through both the Old and New Testament when describing God's people. As we'll see here in in the course of the next few minutes, Mary's language throughout this text is rich with Old Testament passage. Many times she is quoting Psalms verbatim, or at least alluding to the Psalms. Psalms which were written by whom? David. David, who is by no means a prideful man. But David, as perhaps many of you know and can recognize, cried out to God in response to the covenant given to him by saying, Who am I, God? I don't deserve this. I'm nothing, God, but look how far you've brought me. That was the type of humility that clearly impacted Mary. Perhaps even more significantly in terms of our text and in terms of experience, we understand Mary was undoubtedly impacted by other great saints, in particular Hannah, a figure that covers far less time and is written about far less in the Old Testament, but whose significance is clearly seen in in passages like 1 Samuel 1 and 2. Hannah, who would ultimately be the mother of Samuel, in the beginning of 1 Samuel, is depicted as this poor, as this, 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 this woman begging God to become a mother. As we'll see here throughout our time, the language of, of Mary, again, is, is very much reminiscent of the prayers of Hannah and her song in response to her own pregnancy. But before being given that news, we see this depiction of Hannah back in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Verse 10, we read of Hannah, She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, do not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. And she's speaking this this promise of, of devoting her son to Yahweh. In that language of Hannah, you hear the same language of Mary, don't you? For how does Hannah refer to herself repeatedly? She's nothing more than a maidservant. She too is a slave of God, nothing else. Undeserving a gift, yet begging for it from the hand of Yahweh. Hannah understood the same thing that David understood, understood the same thing that Mary would understand, understood the same thing that all of God's people were told to understand throughout their history. What they were told to understand was that they all were to see themselves as truly humble, truly undeserving of any favor from God. You see this applied not just to individuals, but again to corporately. The whole nation of Israel is told time and time again, God shows you Israel why. Not because you're powerful, but because you're weak. Not because you're significant, but because you are insignificant. Israel was chosen not because they brought so much to the table, but because they didn't even have a seat at the table to begin with. Time and time again, Israel is told, you are nothing more than the bond slaves of Yahweh. That's your calling. That is grace. The same thing is on display in the New Testament as well, isn't it? For time and time again, believers in the New Testament are reminded, you are nothing but the bond slaves of Christ. 
Brothers and sisters, we are to be a humble people. We are to remember that we are only who we are because of the almighty hand of God. Paul speaks of this powerfully in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he reminds his own readers of of their own calling. One of my favorite passages in Scripture, he speaks of the fact of not many of you were wise, brethren. Not many of you are noble. Not many of you came from anyone, but God has chosen the weak to shame the strong. God has chosen the fools to shame the wise. God has chosen things that are not to shame the things that are. Why? Why did God choose people like the Israelites? Why did God choose Hannah? Why did God choose David? Why did God choose Mary? Why did God set people like us aside? So that he would get the glory. And in return, we as his people are called repeatedly to remember that. To take comfort in that humble state, to understand that we at our core are nothing more than slaves of God. But there's nothing greater than that. There's nothing that would bring more joy than that. This is such an important reminder to all of us. For although we read of humility so frequently in Scripture, it's still something we struggle with, isn't it? And while we certainly can easily feign humility. And so when people compliment us on something, many of us are smart enough to say, oh, no, 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 not me. I don't deserve that. No, to God be the glory. And we use that language, but so often in our heart, if we're honest, in our heart we think, yeah, I I do deserve this. I am significant. While we may know the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians that says not many of you were strong, not many of you were wise, if we're honest, some of us in here would say, well, yeah, maybe not many of us, but at least me. I mean, I, I think I brought some to the table, right? I know I'm prone to think that way. Maybe I'm just exposing my own wicked heart to you all, but, but certainly some of you can relate to that. We like to think far more highly of ourselves than we ought. But when we do that, when we lose sight of this humility, we lose sight of what makes this life so precious. We certainly lose sight of what makes Christmas worth celebrating. It's only when we begin with this profound appreciation of our humility before God. It's only when we appreciate how dark of a state we lived in prior to God that we can appreciate the beauty of God's light. We can appreciate the weight of God's glory. Indeed, as we get back to Luke 1, we see that it is that weight, it is that preciousness, it's that beauty that drives really the entirety of Mary's song. For having acknowledged how unworthy she is, how lowly she is, she spends the rest of her song speaking of the one who deserves all the praise and all the glory for the news regarding the son that she would deliver. We find that praise in the depiction of God's infinite glory, picking it back up in verses 49 through 53. Reading it again there, we see four. Here's why Mary praises God. For the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Time and time again, we see Mary's focus is not at all on herself, but upon God, upon who he is, upon what he has done and what he will do. Just a, a cursory glance at this text immediately brings to mind a number of attributes that Mary appears to be referencing. We can list off a few of these attributes as Mary herself appears to be doing at the beginning. Starting with this language of God's might. In verse 49, again, describing God, she she speaks of him as being the mighty one who has done great things for me. Later on in verse 51, she says, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. If you've studied the attributes of God, read through any dictionary definitions, perhaps the attribute that rightly comes to mind is God's omnipotence. Mary recognizes God is omnipotent. That is to say his power is limitless. His power is limitless when it comes to accomplishing what his will is. God cannot be stopped. God cannot be slowed, for he is almighty. As we continue to 
to glance over these lyrics, we see other attributes as well, don't we? In verse 50, for speaking elsewhere, she says, and his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. Again, Mary references an attribute many of us have heard many times over, that attribute being mercy. Once more, if, if you have just a basic dictionary definition, you understand God's mercy speaks of his goodness shown to those who are in misery, to those who are oppressed, like Mary feels. Furthermore, and perhaps in a, a summary fashion, when we skipped over briefly in verse 49, describing God, Mary says, The mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Again, there, the attribute is, is that of holiness. Holiness, which speaks to God's perfection. It speaks to his sinlessness. It speaks to how separate he is from us because of that purity. And if the song were to end there, that is to say, if Mary were just to say, I rejoice, my soul rejoices because God is omnipotent, because God is merciful, because God is holy, that in and of itself would make for an impressive song. That in and of itself would perhaps mirror many of our own prayers when we are prone to just list off a few attributes when we think of who God is. And in listing off those attributes, we by no means would be saying anything untrue. But we must understand if we're to appreciate the depth of Mary's song. If we're to really appreciate the level of understanding on display here. It is vitally important that you appreciate that Mary is not just listing off attributes, as you would find in some systematic theology textbook. She's not running through her children's Sunday school lessons and saying, okay, yeah, God's creator, God's majestic, God's all-powerful, God's glorious, right? And the way, again, so many of us might be prone to do at times. No, when Mary speaks of God in this way, she's not so much just speaking to a list of attributes, as much as she is speaking to references to God's activity. Mary is not referencing dictionary definitions. She's referencing stories. Stories that define her, stories that define her parents, her grandparents, her great-grandparents, all of the Israelites that have come before her. But in order to understand that, in order to hear those stories and appreciate just how rich of an understanding Mary's demonstrating here, we must see these attributes not in just their their individual words, but in the language that Mary is using when referencing those attributes. We can see those in reference to all those attributes I already mentioned. Let's consider, for instance, how God's activity is referenced when Mary describes him as the mighty one. Later on in verse 51, he says he's done mighty deeds with his arm. Now, in order to understand what Mary is saying here, we can't lose sight of that phrase, with his arm. He's done mighty deeds with his arm. Why would she say that? That sounds a bit foreign to us. That's not the way we describe someone who is strong. But there's a reason for that. The reason for that is when you go back to the Old Testament and you see this phrase, with the arm of God, you see that that the people aren't just speaking of God's power, they're speaking of God's power to save his people. The power that is on display in their story of rescue. Most significantly, it is might that is on display in the story of the Exodus. And I believe it's that story that Mary's referencing here. There are numerous texts that describe this might and, and link the arm of God to the rescue of people out of Israel. But perhaps most powerfully for our time today to appreciate the mindset of of a good Israelite, turn with me, if you would, back to Deuteronomy chapter 26. For here we see both that language used, but couched in this wider story, in a story that the people of God were told to repeat time and time again. In Deuteronomy chapter 26, you see commands given that are to be followed after the people of God had entered into the promised land. If you've been with us in our study of Joshua, you understand that that's exactly what we've been studying. And upon entrance into that promised land, the people of God were commanded that they were regularly to offer their first fruits to God as a recognition of their dependence upon him. But listen to how that sacrifice is to be marked and what language is to be used when offering that sacrifice. Deuteronomy chapter 26, 
Pick it up in verse 1. Then it shall be when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, and you possess it and live in it, that you shall take some of the first fruit of all the produce of the ground which you bring in from your land that the Lord your God gives you. You shall put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. You shall go to the priest who is in the office at that time and say to him, I declare this day to the Lord my God that I have entered the land which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take a basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there few in number, but there he became a great, mighty, and populous nation. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us and imposed hard labor on us. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers. And the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror and with signs and wonders. And he has brought us to the place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And you can move on from there, but but hopefully you see the point. As we read this, we see practice that, again, might sound strange to us. For so oftentimes in the language we use in our churches, even we as parents as we teach our kids, we might say, hey, remember, son, God's powerful. Hey, remember, daughter, we go to church because God deserves to be worshipped. But the language of Deuteronomy, and so oftentimes the language of the Old Testament is so much more precious and beautiful than that. For when they're offering the sacrifice, instead of just saying, I'm here to give the sacrifice because God deserves it, the people are told to rehearse this story. And they say, I'm giving this because my father was a wandering airman. Because my father went into Egypt, because our people were enslaved, but because in our, our oppression we cried out to God and God remembered us and God with an outstretched arm rescued us and brought us to this promised land and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's a story of their history. And so rather than just speaking to the might of God, they're saying, let me tell you about the might of God. This is how powerful God is, powerful enough to to redeem us, to rescue us. And so oftentimes throughout the Old Testament scriptures, you see that pattern. The pattern that God begins by describing the redemption effects coming about from his arm in Exodus 6.6. The same language picked up in Deuteronomy 26. The same language is referenced by the prophet Isaiah in passages like Isaiah 30, Isaiah 53, time and time and time again, the people are reminded of the power of God, but not just the power of God as some intellectual concept, but the power of God as defined in the Exodus. As Mary describes God, Yahweh, as omnipotent, as mighty, she is remembering that story. As you rescued my people out of Egypt with your mighty arms, so too are you doing the same thing now, God. There's beauty in that. The same beauty and the same depiction of God's might is referenced later on in Mary's song. In Luke chapter 1, describing his mighty deeds, she says he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Again, this language might sound strange to us, especially to some 16-year-old girl who has grown up under Roman, uh, Roman captivity. What is she referencing? How has she seen this might on display? What king has she seen overthrown by God? Well, to put it bluntly, she, she hasn't seen it in her life, has she? She's grown up under the same ruler. And yet she uses this language of God's might to reverse the fortunes of his people. We have to appreciate again that Mary here is not coming up with some new language. Mary again is reflecting and revealing this language that is stored up in her heart. Language that she has memorized from David. Language that she has memorized from Hannah. Language she has memorized from the the language of her people with whom she so closely identifies. There again are numerous examples of God's might being shown and and display in terms of this reversal of fortunes. And we could turn to Isaiah, we could turn to Psalms, but once again, just consider the language of Hannah, a fellow maidservant, a bondslave of God, who was herself insignificant, yet here, how she describes God in 1 Samuel chapter 2. There, as she responds to the news of her own pregnancy, the pregnancy she so desperately desired, she describes God in these ways in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, beginning in verse 
3. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. With him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has had many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. David, or David speaks in this way. Hannah here, a lowly maidservant of God, understands God has the might to reverse fortunes. And so she sees herself caught up in that same story. Mary, as you jump ahead to Luke 1, is doing the same thing. God is mighty, not just to, to redeem people out of Egypt, but, but he's mighty to reverse everything, to turn the world upside down for the benefit of his people. Mary uses then this rich language of Old Testament history, again, setting herself in the story of God's people, and it is perhaps of no surprise then that if you were to read the rest of Luke, you see Luke highlight how Jesus does exactly what she's talking about. For what are the miracles of Jesus? Well, they're feeding the hungry. It's a rejection of those who are in power and bringing in those who are humble. It's a blessing of the children who are seen as insignificant, insignificant yet treated as significant. It's speaking to Pilate and saying, you have no authority outside of what my father's given you. It's lifting up a people that were downtrodden and setting them in a place of real authority. Jesus understood the significance of these works. Jesus understood that it was to be interpreted not just in, in terms of a, a helpful teacher, but in terms of the way God behaves, the way God acts. Again, we can see numerous examples of that in his ministry, but perhaps most, most powerfully, you can hear the words that Jesus offers to people who are facing doubt, specifically the disciples of John the Baptist. In the midst of Jesus' ministry, one of one of the most powerful passages that, that I can think of in Luke, you have John who is sitting in prison. John the Baptist who is told that he is, is the one that sets the stage for the Messiah and yet here he is languishing in prison, going to be executed. And so he sends his own followers to Jesus to say, Jesus, are, are you actually going to do anything? Are you really the Messiah? Or sh should we actually be waiting for someone else? response to that question we can pick up the narrative in luke chapter 7 verse 20 when the men came to him that is when the disciples came to jesus they said john the baptist has sent us to you to ask are you the expected one or do we look for someone else the very time he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind and he jesus answered and said go and report to john what you have seen and heard the blind receive sight the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. What is Jesus saying here? What is his defense for the fact that he is the Messiah? Well, his defense is that he reverses the fortunes just as Mary proclaimed. He reverses that which the world expects just as the prophets proclaimed. He reverses the fortunes just as Hannah proclaimed. He's doing exactly what Yahweh has always done. And he and he alone can do it because he's the Messiah, because he is God. While Mary could not have known the literal fulfillment of what she's saying here, that is to say she could not have known that Jesus would literally give starving people food, she knew that that's how God acts. And so she praises him for his might to do exactly that. Mighty to save, mighty to reverse fortunes. It's the might that was on display throughout the Old Testament for God's people. It's a might that's on display and fulfilled in Christ. And it's a might that we still can praise today. Not only that, as we mentioned earlier, Mary speaks to his, his holiness and his mercy. And, and time does not suffice us to really explore this as much. But, but here Mary's referring again to very Old Testament covenantal language. For when she says that holy is his name, when she speaks of his mercy... She speaks ultimately in verse 54 as, as giving help to Israel, and we'll see that here fleshed out a bit in a moment. And what Mary is referring to here is, is again, the mercy that the God has always shown to his people. The language of Deuteronomy 26 rings true. 
God showed mercy to his people who were afflicted in Egypt. As Mary speaks of God being merciful, she's simply repeating that, that same language, those same categories. As I mentioned earlier, as you read through this, and perhaps your Bibles make this clear in the number of footnotes that, that reference Old Testament passages, it, it is incredible to consider how many details are, are behind these words. How many stories are represented in these passing phrases? The depth of Mary's understanding of Yahweh is revealed in Scripture is astounding. For in Mary's song, we are reading the words of an insignificant young woman growing up in an insignificant, unimpressive family located in an insignificant, easily forgotten town, living under, knowing only the rule of a seemingly impenetrable, powerful Roman Empire. Mary, again, has never seen kings overthrown. She herself undoubtedly was hungry. She lived in a poor town. How on earth could she speak of God this way? Not only was this Mary's own experience, it was her parents, her grandparents, her great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. We are talking about 400 years of silence from God, which comes between the Old and the New Testaments. No prophets, no grand miracle the people of God looked at. And yet, after 400 years of silence, and for Mary, after 16 years of seeing nothing, all it took was the angel Gabriel appearing, telling Mary exactly what was going to happen, and Mary never doubted. Mary understood it fully. And the reason why Mary understood it fully is because she knew the God whom she served. And so while she could not fathom how the pregnancy would come about, that's her initial question, there was no doubt that God had the might to do this, for God had the might to save the people out of Egypt. There is no doubt that God would be merciful for her, to her because God has always been merciful towards those who fear him, and that's Mary. There would be no doubt that God would prove to be holy, that God would prove to be faithful, for that is how God has always been and how God will always be. And so the reason why Mary can rejoice is because Mary knows God. And in that knowledge, again, there is such, such deep conviction in my own heart and I trust for so many of us, for if we are honest, oftentimes our knowledge pales in comparison to the knowledge of this 16-year-old girl. We may know words like omnipotence and power and, and salvation, and we might be able to quote a few Bible verses, but for so many of us, we have not, we've not wrapped ourselves up in the story like Mary has. We have not understood the depths, the beauty of God's glory. And so when those difficult times come, and they do, it is so hard to see past the darkness. It is so hard to rejoice when things get difficult. In order to do that, we have to see God in full color as Mary sees God in full color. We have to be able to answer stories of we have to be able to answer questions of, of who God is and what God has done with stories of how God has interacted with his people and acted on their behalf. We have to do so knowing that these stories aren't just describing ancient history, they're describing us. And they're not just describing what, what things God has done, they're describing what things God is doing and will do for all the verbiage used here is, is used in a tense that speaks both of, of the past but also ongoing reality of how God interacts and how God behaves. This was the faith of Mary. And it makes sense then that this was her refrain. This was her focus. This was the meaning of her Christmas song. It's an amazing amount of faith. An amazing amount of knowledge. And, and perhaps it is no surprise then to see despite her humility, despite her lowly state, despite her undoubtedly uneducated life, because she knew who God was, she is able to come to the end of her song, to that outro, to that conclusion, not with just some vague sense of, gee, I hope we have another Merry Christmas next year. But as she comes to the end, she offers these words of certainty. Of certainty regarding 
not just how great it will be, but knowing exactly what it will be, what it will mean. In those closing verses, in verses 54 through 55, we see that certainty defined based off of the past acts of God as well as his future promise. Follow along with me again in verses 54 through 55. There we read these closing words. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Once again, because we have been conditioned by the type of songs we listen to today, and perhaps because we do not have the same wealth of knowledge of the Old Testament that Mary had, this ending can seem a bit anticlimactic and about a, a bit uncertain even. But when you understand the stories behind these words, when you understand what she's referring to, again, you hear the certainty of someone who knows God and knows what will come to be. That certainty is grounded, first and foremost, there in verse 54, and her understanding of, of the identity of God's people, namely, this identity that's summed up in this phrase, Israel his servant, and then the name Abraham. Throughout the Old Testament, you will find Israel referred to as God's servant. Time and time again, that again is the nation's identity. Time and time again, you will see that identity re- reflect back or refer back to Abraham. The reason being is because Abraham represents that covenant, that promise that God has made to his people. And it is because they are God's servant, it is because they're connected to Abraham, that the people of God could always trust. That the people of God could always see light, even if things were dark. You see this type of language used in so many beautiful contexts, but if you would turn with me just back to one in Psalm 105. A psalm that I believe Mary no doubt knew well. In Psalm 105, using this type of language, or I'm sorry, Psalm, uh, yeah, Psalm 105 here, let's see. We see this type of language used. There the psalmist says, he has remembered his covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham, And his oath to Isaac, then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance, when they are only a few men in number, very few, and strangers in it, and they wandered about from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another. He permitted no man to oppress them. He reproved kings for their sakes. Do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Here we see this language used as a means of strengthening the people. Here we, we see this reminder that their strength, that their hope is not found just in the idea that they are a nation, but they are the nation of Israel, the servant of God. And here we are reminded that their, their hope, their comfort is found not in their own power, but in God's promise to remember them, to remember his covenant, to remember Abraham, and to remember that because of that, God would never fail. Throughout the Old Testament, you see that is the root of confidence. Remember the covenant. Remember Abraham, Israel, and you will be saved. We jump ahead to Mary. You see the same language. God has remembered Abraham. God will remember the people of Abraham. And as Old Testament as that might sound, we see beautifully in later passages, namely Galatians 3, 7, that you and I can find equally comfort because you and I are true sons of Abraham due to our faith in Christ. And so we are wrapped up in the same confidence, wrapped up in that same level of expectation and certainty, knowing who we are. Because we know who we are, we can with certainty rejoice, as Mary says, that as God spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and sins forever, because we know she's not just speaking in past tense. She is saying just as he spoke to our fathers, just as he remembered Abraham, he's going to remember us today. And he will fulfill all the promises just as Isaiah prophesied, just as Gabriel the angel announced to her earlier in chapter 1, and just as we know has come to be because we live on this side of the cross. Mary rejoiced, and Mary ended her song in complete confidence, not because in who she was, but because in who her God was. Not because in what she had done, 
but because of what God would do. Not because of what she had seen, but because of what her people had seen and what she knew she too would someday see. As we consider that song in our own hearts, we again are reminded of, of not just the celebration and beauty of, of Christmas in terms of a season, we're reminded of why we can sing day in and day out and why we can remain confident regardless of how difficult of a situation we see. And so like Mary, we as brothers and sisters in Christ sing not out of self-confidence but out of an understanding of our desperation. We sing not because of some sense of nostalgia and wish for how things used to be but because of how faithful God has always been. And we sing not because we vaguely hope that things get better, but because we know things will get better. Because God is God. And we are his bond slaves. And so as we close, even here in a moment, and sing one last song, my encouragement to all of you, first of all, those of you who are unbelievers, is is to really understand and perhaps for the first time see the beauty of Christmas and why we as Christians celebrate. I pray that you are unbelievers understand the weariness this world offers and I pray that you've not been deceived by the Christmas songs played over the radio that if you just hope hard enough and wish long enough that things will just magically get better because they won't. The world is dark and it is just going to get darker. The only hope of light and life is in Christ, unbeliever. And so... Put your faith in him. Trust in him. As always, if you have questions about that, please ask me. I'll be in the lobby afterwards. Ask our elder Dave at the welcome desk or Larry, and they'd be happy to help. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, as we look ahead just one week from today and and try to ready our hearts to celebrate, let us begin the same place Mary began. Let us begin with that profound sense of humility. Remembering who we are, more importantly, who we were prior to Christ as we prepare our hearts for celebration, let us do so just as Mary did by not focusing our attention on all that is around us, but by focusing it on the glory of God. And just as Mary did, let us rejoice so that when people say, what are you most excited about for Christmas? Or when people say, hey, hey, tell me about the love of God, we don't respond by saying, yes, God is love. He's in Jesus. We respond by saying, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you about God's love. I was in darkness and God opened my eyes. I was hungry and God filled my stomach. I was dead. And in Jesus, I've been made alive. That's the story, not just of Christmas, but it's the story we'll be telling and retelling for eternity. And so let's rejoice in that story. And even as we prepare to celebrate Christmas today, let us close with one final song of that glory. That being said, let me pray as the band returns. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the profound wisdom of Mary. God, truly she demonstrated a deep understanding of who you are. And as such, she provides a great example for us to follow. Might we all be quick to acknowledge our undeserving state We acknowledge that we can celebrate not because we are so great, but because you are infinitely greater. Might we today remember your glory, remember your love, and might we remember it not just as words on a page, but might we remember it as our own life story, as the story of the countless brothers and sisters in Christ who have come before us and who will come after. And God, let us celebrate today and in the coming days knowing not just the beauty of the birth of your Son, not just knowing the certainty of his resurrection, but remembering the certainty of his return. Might we glory in that and all that it represents. In Jesus' name we pray these things, amen.